Chapter 3 The Breaking Point Tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than the suffering itself. Paulo Coelho, Happier wasn't my first startup, but it was the one with the highest personal and professional stakes. Let me be more honest about this. Happier mattered to me in a way no other company I'd launched or worked at ever had. It was literally born out of my life story, and this was our main marketing narrative, how I went from being a refugee to the United States to starting a company to help people be happier. As CEO, my signature was on everything from investor agreements to employee letters. I was responsible for our team, for figuring out which direction to lead us, for the satisfaction of tens of thousands of people who would come to use Happier. I felt intense pressure to make Happier a success. Some of the stress I felt came from the real challenges of getting the company off the ground. Our team quickly grew, almost tripling in size, and at times some of the interpersonal dynamics didn't work. Features we thought users would love, they didn't. We were constantly trying out new things and didn't always take enough time to learn why they did or didn't work. Plus, we needed to raise more money to keep our doors open and to keep developing the app. We didn't have a lot of data yet, so this wasn't going to be easy. As the months rushed past after our launch, my thoughts gripped me tighter and tighter. I was afraid of failing, of screwing up, of running out of money, of the team not being satisfied, of not being a competent leader. When you move into fear, Everything in your world narrows, even your field of vision as your entire body focuses its energy to fight whatever it is you're afraid of. My world narrowed and I didn't think about much else. The voice in my head was on a constant loop of a what-if narrative, what if this doesn't work? What if the whole gratitude thing doesn't work in an app? What if we run out of money? What if I have to lay off the team? What if, fear began to color every interaction and experience? I know I'm not the first entrepreneur to feel this way. My friend Chayton completely burned out getting his startup off the ground while also trying to keep up with his graduate classes at MIT and Harvard. As a fellow overachiever, he was getting a double degree. He showed all the physical signs of burnout, weight gain, chronic tiredness, bags under his eyes. Being constantly distracted by work strained his relationship with his family. The primary thing I remember is a vicious cycle of self-doubt and poor performance, Chaitan told me. Negative thoughts were constantly cycling through my brain, this won't work. Focus on something you're better at. You're not made to be an entrepreneur. They actually prevented me from excelling. Then when my performance on those tasks didn't live up to my expectations, the negative chatter would get louder. When you create something you care about, you worry about not being able to pull it off. Happier was my boldest attempt yet to do something valuable and important with my life. Entrepreneur friends tell me similar stories, fear and uncertainty come with the job. But in my mind, if Happier didn't work, I was a total failure as an entrepreneur and as a human being. I'd blended my identity as Natalie with my company, Happier. I tied up my self-worth with the company's success. How could I go on if I failed? Journal Practice breaking fear into parts, this is a practice I wish I had done when I was overcome by my fear of failing because it would have helped me avoid becoming completely paralyzed by it. We all have things we fear. Maybe you're thinking about switching jobs and worry about giving up something secure for a riskier path. Or perhaps you fear having a difficult conversation with someone important to you. 
bring to mind something you really want, but you're afraid to do. Then open your journal and complete this sentence, I'm afraid of, when you have a clear idea what you're afraid of, break up your fear into smaller parts. Here are some questions to guide you, here are some questions to guide you, what specifically are you afraid of? For example, if your fear is that you won't do as well as you want on an upcoming presentation at work, are you afraid of how your colleagues will see you, how your boss will critique you, how vulnerable you'll feel? Be as specific as you can. What will happen if this fear comes true? Consider the worst case scenario for a second and write about how you might feel and what would change in your life. Do you think you could get through it, and what are some things that would help you do that? Is your fear helpful? Some parts of fear can be helpful if they prompt you to learn something about how you feel or what you might need to do. No need to be afraid of your fear. Other parts might be getting in your way and wasting your energy. I don't believe in being fearless. If you're a human being, you'll feel fear at some points in your life. It's completely normal. But this exercise can help you break up your fear into more manageable parts and avoid treating it as a paralyzing obstacle. Keeping secrets, saving face, if you think I told anyone about the fear and doubt I felt, you'd be wrong. My husband and a few close friends knew, but not fully. I told no one else. I'd never met a leader who shared their doubts or anxieties as they were experiencing them. When you hear entrepreneurs or leaders talk about being uncertain about their company's future, it's usually in retrospect, after they've figured out what they're doing and where they're going. So like most other entrepreneurs, I tried my best to act like a confident, need-no-sleep superhuman and to hide the increasingly paralyzing fear that I felt. I thought to share it would make me weak, and I did not want anyone to think I wasn't up to the job. But my friends, family, and colleagues weren't stupid, they knew something wasn't right. During one of our weekly team meetings, we had a big debate about making a significant change in the way our users experienced courses in the Happier app. Everyone had a strong opinion and the discussion went on for more than an hour. Natalie, one of our team members asked, looking at me strangely. I hadn't said a word. I never had nothing to say. I always had opinions. In fact, the problem usually was that my opinions were too strong but I simply couldn't find the energy to come up with anything intelligent. I couldn't focus. My mind was caught in a fear and doubt spiral. More people started to ask frequently if I was okay. Oh, I'm just stressed. You know, the usual. I brushed it off, trying to project and everything is okay, totally got this vibe. I've always been convincing when it comes to being upbeat. And I was the CEO of a company called Happier. How could I reveal that I wasn't happy, at all, and that I couldn't practice what I preached? Everyone would think I was a total fraud if they knew just how stressed, sad, and anxious I felt. Was I a total fraud, peddling this idea of gratitude as the path to happiness while being increasingly unable to feel even small moments of joy in my own life? What would our happier users think if they found out how I truly felt? In fact, Gratitude was one of the ways in which I tried to cope. The more anxious and worried I felt, the more gratitude I practiced. I became a gratitude overachiever, some days sharing more than 10 happy moments in the happier app. They were all real and I treasured them, but I increasingly shared them out of desperation. Maybe if I found enough good moments, then I wouldn't feel like such a mess. 
but you can't replace stress with gratitude. You can't remove anxiety with joy. You can't simply ignore the pile of painful feelings growing inside of you and cover it with gratitude like a bandage. It doesn't work that way. As hard as I tried to keep it together, to move forward, to put on my can-do face every day, I was slowly losing my ability to function. The vicious cycle of self-doubt, my inability to carry on with my everything is fine. Act spilled from work to home, although I didn't fully grasp it at the time. I was becoming a shell of myself. I was fixated on the endless stress and worry about the company while moving at a frantic pace to solve problems. I zoomed past those closest to me, unable to fully connect with them. Awi wasn't new to the intensity of the ups and downs I experienced while running a startup. We had been together for 15 years, so he'd seen a lot. Naively I believed that he was so laid back that he could handle it when I unleashed my waves of stress, panic, and fear on him. That was a farce. Awi, who had always been my rock, my comfort, was running out of his usual kind patience. The more he pulled back, the more I resented losing the support and care I'd come to rely on. I unleashed more and more of my fear and stress on him, hoping to feel that comfort once more. When I didn't, I got more resentful. Eventually, we just stopped talking. My marriage turned into a series of call transactional exchanges about who got home when, who needed to pick up what, with interludes of snippy comments. There wasn't one part of me available to consider doing anything about it. It's not that I stopped loving my husband. It was more like someone had locked away any good, loving feelings in a safe and threw away the combination. My daughter, who was nine at the time, began to look at me with deep worry in her beautiful big eyes. She hesitated to ask me anything, from how my day was to whether she could go on a play date with a friend. She seemed to want to avoid poking through my thin protective layer at all costs. She'd already seen enough of my stress spilling out. I'd yell at the top of my lungs when she dropped something on the kitchen floor, then I'd cry uncontrollably from the guilt of yelling at her. When we were a few minutes late to her piano lesson, I'd curse and honk at every car that drove slower than I wanted to, completely losing it. Sucking as a mom was intensely painful. Even recalling this now makes my heart twitch. The voice in my head shifted from the loop of terrible what-ifs. To scenarios of total failure, you are obviously no good as an entrepreneur. And you're being a terrible mom and a wife. You're just a failure, that's all. And you have failed at your American dream. What a waste. The self-doubt was terrible but it wasn't new. What made it so much worse was that it wasn't just related to happier. It was tied to who I was as a human being. I'd felt it, along with feelings of anxiety and fear of failure, for a very long time. I had chased achievements to try to escape these feelings, to blow enough happiness bubbles so that the good emotions would leave no space for anything negative. But the pile had only grown, and now I couldn't keep carrying it around anymore. All these feelings started to spill out. I didn't just have them, I became them. Soon I reached a point I never, ever thought I would. I was Natalie. I was tough, resilient, beyond resilient. A super overachiever. But I couldn't fake it anymore, not even me. I reached a breaking point. I was going through the motions of my life but I wasn't really there. I sat with my team during key discussions, not saying a word. I didn't feel like I was in the room with them. 
then I'd stay late at the office without knowing what I was trying to accomplish. I often found myself sitting in my car in the parking garage after work, not sure if I was coming into work or going home. Normally I have no trouble getting things done. Even in the most stressful situations I can plow through bajillions of tasks. I used to feel smug when reading articles about people having trouble being productive. Now I couldn't complete even the simplest things on my to-do list. I went to business meetings over breakfast and lunch only to suddenly realize that the person I was meeting had already left but I was still just sitting there, with no idea what I was doing in the restaurant or what I was supposed to do. Clearly, I needed to do something because the waiter was almost screaming at me, Mom, are you okay? Once on a business trip to San Francisco, I arrived unable to remember what it was all about. One of the things my family always talks about is my foolproof memory. My husband jokes that he wishes he had that magic memory eraser pen like the guys in Men in Black so that I wouldn't remember all his little mess-ups for years after they happened, like the time he drilled a hole through our kitchen wall straight into the living room while hanging up a painting, but now I had to search through my emails to remind myself what I was doing in the Bay Area. At home I'd find myself frozen in the middle of playing Connect 4 with my daughter, zoned out and drifting far away from reality. You're a failure and won't ever do anything right. Was looping in my mind. Mia would look at me with confusion, but also with patience, as if she was getting used to this new version of mom. A breaking point feels exactly like it sounds, like every single thing inside you and in your life is broken, your work your family, your basic life functions. I either eat too much or nothing at all. I drank too much wine. I stopped doing anything I enjoyed, like going to museums or watching movies, two of my favorite things. I slept in short increments of a couple hours here and there. I tried to avoid any unnecessary interactions with other people, including my parents, friends, and the team in the office. A single day seemed to contain years. It was dark like a light inside of me had been extinguished. All I could feel was dread. This isn't happening, listen, you're not okay. I was having lunch outside on a chilly October day with Mike, an investor in Happier and a trusted friend. What do you mean? I tried to wave him off. He wouldn't let it go. You're not okay. You need to focus on yourself. Right now, nothing else matters. In my gut I knew he was right. More and more, my team, friends, and family had been urging me to take a break, to catch my breath, to take care of myself. I rushed away from their concerned looks and questions. I changed topics, shifted conversations. I kept my wall up. Even though we had reached across the cold distance between us and asked me to consider shutting down the company. It wasn't that he didn't want Happier to survive, but rather he was worried that I wouldn't survive. I dismissed his idea as absurd. Happier was everything to me. I was happier. But my wall wasn't strong enough to keep Mike out. He cared about happier and our success, but he also cared about me as a person. If Mike was telling me that I needed to focus on me rather than the company, I must be in really bad shape. A year later I found out that it was my husband who had called him to try to get through to me. I also knew that Mike had gone through his own personal hell. Since we'd met, his marriage had ended and he'd gone through a difficult divorce. At the same time, he had been starting his own venture fund, 
essentially building a company from scratch and enduring all the stresses and worries that come with that. We had spent many hours talking about what he was going through, and I had rushed to see him many times when he really needed a friendly ear. Having witnessed his vulnerability created a tiny space for my own. That and the fact that Mike gave me an ultimatum. You're going to focus on yourself, he said firmly. And you're going to go see this woman, her name is Janet. Until then, I'm not going to talk to you about happier. Oh. It may have been Mike telling me to get help, but there was one thing I certainly was not doing, seeing a therapist. First of all, we don't do that. By we I mean Russian Jewish immigrants who are trained to bear whatever pain there is, to put it away in a steel box, lock it, and keep moving forward. Sit around and talk about our problems, feelings, and childhoods. No, thank you. Therapy had always seemed like a uniquely weird American idea. So useless. So self-indulgent. Second of all, I didn't do that. And by I I mean Natalie Kogan, who had everything together a successful career, a beautiful family in a beautiful house in a beautiful neighborhood with a cute Mini Cooper in the garage, and a large collection of big, funky rings. In my mind, going to see someone was like waving a huge white flag of defeat above my head. It was the ultimate sign of weakness. It would show that I'd failed at being the fighter warrior who can do life on her own. Listen, I tried to match Mike's firmness, I don't really do therapy. I don't care. He looked me in the eye. But also she isn't a therapist. I'm texting you her number. I was shocked. As he got up to leave, he added, go see her and then I'll talk to you about business again. As I sat there, stunned, my mind went crazy. My first thought was I'm not doing this. No way. Then, I just need to get some sleep and get my thoughts organized, then I'll be better. He'll see. Then, I'm just not cut out to run a company. I'll sell happier and then I'll feel better. Then, I want to run away somewhere, do my own version of eat, pray, love, take a break from myself, close my eyes, and sleep for a really long time, like forever. As I got up and walked away from our lunch, I tried and tried to shut down these swirling thoughts. I was Natalie. I could change direction, compartmentalize, bounce back. But the thoughts persisted. They had been there for all the months and years of creating Happier, and long before that. They weren't going away. In my gut I knew I needed Janet or someone else. Anyone. I needed help, desperately. But I dreaded calling her. I put it off. It took a few more weeks to think about it. A few more weeks of dysfunction and dread. Mike told me I should come see you. I was giving in and scheduling an appointment. I don't really know if this is for me, but. It's okay, the voice on the other end of the line was soft and comforting, free of expectations. I understand. When I opened the door to Janet's office for the very first time, I felt like I was stepping off a cliff. My unlikely guide through the storm, Mike was right, Janet wasn't a therapist. I didn't know what she was, but eventually she became my teacher and my spiritual guide. Luckily, she didn't say the word spiritual when we met. I was allergic to the word because people like me didn't do stuff like that. There had never been a spiritual or religious thread in my life. We are Jewish, but it's a cultural identity rather than a religious one. All forms of religion were illegal for most of my life in Russia, but Jews in particular weren't allowed to participate in any customs or ceremonies. 
when we'd been invited to celebrate Jewish holidays in America shortly after we immigrated, we had no clue what we were doing. But it was more than that. Somewhere along the way I'd adopted the view that any religion or spirituality was a crutch. Only those who couldn't hack real life used it. I thought of spirituality or religion in the same way as whenever anyone talked about circumstances beyond our control rich with excuses that people latched onto to make life easier. And I didn't do easy. I was a fighter warrior who knew the real truth in life, anything worthwhile was to be found through fighting, struggling, and suffering. If I'm being really honest, I had no clue about what spirituality even meant, but this didn't weaken my conviction about it, but here I was, sitting in a big plush armchair in front of this woman with short grey hair, her hands resting in her lap. Our first meeting had a lot of silence in it. Janet didn't prod me with many questions and I didn't really know what to say. She asked me how I knew Mike and I launched into telling her about Happier, our vision, why it mattered so much, how difficult it was, and how we needed to raise money. It was as if I was talking to a potential investor or someone I needed to impress. Janet nodded patiently as I talked. I'm sure it didn't take her long to figure out that it was easier for me to talk about the company than about how I felt. I guess I'm really exhausted. I thought it was safe enough for a CEO of a startup to admit to that without seeming weak. Well, of course you are, she said. You've got so much on your shoulders, so many people you are taking care of, so much pressure. Of course you're exhausted. Janet didn't try to change what I said or how I felt, or try to fix or question it. She was so generous that I immediately wanted to cry. And run to hug her. And never leave her little office ever for the rest of my life. But, of course, I did none of that. Instead I used a crazy amount of willpower to look nonchalant and strong, unmoved. But I was overcome with a strange and unfamiliar feeling. What was it? I loved it. It felt safe. It felt like relief. It felt like coming home. It was the feeling of being unconditionally accepted. I left Janet's office that day knowing I had experienced something profound. Talking with her gave me a tiny break from feeling as if I was fighting with every part of myself and my life. Yet I didn't know what to do with it. If I kept going to Janet, would I become some lazy cop-out who never did anything meaningful again? Did I have to exchange my ambitions and goals for a life of sitting in a comfy plush chair doing nothing? No way back, I didn't tell anyone that I went to see Janet, except Mike, so that he knew I'd taken his advice. After a few weeks, I told a wee. She's this woman Mike knows, I said without giving any details about who she was or what we talked about. The funny thing is that I didn't really know who she was or what exactly we talked about. I just knew that when I was with her I didn't have to pretend or to run so fast. I could just be. And that felt amazing. I kept going back. Janet let me go on with my defeatist self-talk for as long as I wanted, how I was weak, an imposter, and a failure. You're not a failure. It's that you've tried to numb any pain you feel with all your accomplishments, Janet would say after some time. But that has stopped working for you. It's the way of the ego not of your higher self. No part of me was ready for words such as higher self. I certainly feel like failure. I can't function in this life that I worked so hard to build, I argued, fighting back tears. It's like I can't handle my real life so I'm looking to escape from reality. You are looking for another way, 
she said, finally. It's not an escape from reality. It's a way to live your life being guided less by your ego that keeps convincing you that you need to do more, more, and more to earn your own love and love of other people in your life. You need to learn to love yourself and be kind to yourself, she said. Janet was calmly shattering everything I had ever understood. Just for who you are, exactly how you are. Your higher self knows you don't need to do a single thing. You don't need to earn love. How was it possible to just like myself for who I was when I had grown up with the fundamental understanding that life is all about improving myself, pushing myself to learn and do more and do it better? How could I even consider something in me like a higher self that was somehow more true to me than my so-called ego, which had driven me feverishly to chase everything I had achieved so spectacularly? On days when I had profound experiences like this with Janet, the voice in my head went into overdrive to make sure I didn't take them too seriously. This is just some escapist spiritual mumbo-jumbo. It's for the weak. You're just being weak if you listen to it. You're here because you've failed at life. There is a saying that suffering is the sandpaper necessary to bring about happiness. There is a point where the pain of that rough surface on our vulnerable selves makes it urgent that we find relief. Perhaps I'd been sandpapering myself long enough that I finally had no choice, I had to open up. I'd been constantly chasing achievements, pushing aside old pain, fear, and sadness that I had no idea how to process, and then working harder and harder every day to pretend that everything was okay. For me, pain and suffering were what I knew how to listen to. Did I really want to continue to live this way? Journal practice, your safe place. Take a few moments to think and write about where or when you feel accepted and safe. It could be with a person, someone with whom you feel comfortable being yourself just as you are, without having to put on an act. Or perhaps it's a special location, such as your favorite spot in nature. Maybe you feel as if you are truly home when you're doing an activity, such as yoga or writing. It's important to remind ourselves about the people, places, or things that help us experience that magical feeling of being okay just as we are. Even if we can't always access them, knowing that they're there for us can be comforting, especially when we're going through small or big life storms.